everybody. Welcome to the Vox Podcast, live from the frozen freaking tundra of Columbus, Ohio, where it was 10 stinking degrees this morning. Mike Erie here, live from Austin, Texas, where it was what? It's uh, 39. Okay. Cool. All right. All right. And then Auburn, California, where it is? 65. Oh, okay. Well, I win. And by that, I mean I lose. You it lose. snowed <laughs> and it's 10 degrees, which, dude, it's freaking November, man. Come on. But remember Bonnie, when you said that when it was so quiet and cold and the storm, that's when you that. see God the most. I never said that. And it's you not did. storming. <laughs> I think I was referring to warm storms, not, not cold you storms. You said the stillness of the snow. Oh, yeah. my goodness. You were really never... poetic about it. And now you're going again. <laughs> All right. And we also have um, a new Bonnieism. Um, to kind of announce, and Bonnie, you should never tell us these things off air, because there <laughs> we want we want a better reaction on air. But the, it, it is the purple ones that hurt is the new one. So so you Bonnie, maybe, would you maybe not even give context and just leave it at that? And just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, the purple ones are the ones that hurt. The end of the story was she came in inside the house and said ten times, "It's the purple ones that hurt." <laughs> And her husband was in the other room wondering what in the world is happening. As she repeated over and over, it's the purple ones that hurt. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, oh, there you have it, sports fans. All right. Um, Bonnie, you can, Bonnie, you can give context, whatever you can pull yourself together if you want. Otherwise, otherwise... I've got a whole bunch of micro communities I want to get through. Um, these are we're we're hearing from folks all over the place, and uh, and so I just want to give ten uh, locations. If you are there and have not emailed in, uh, we're beginning to assemble uh, crews in these different locations, depending on how many listeners respond to us. So um, Plano, Dallas slash Fort Worth area. There is uh, there is a couple who actually started. They started. They started the Vox. Thank you. They started the Vox or the Vox Church, Vox Community, with us, and then moved there. And oh, cool. they're amazing people, David and Lydia. So if you're in the Dallas Fort Worth area, they're in Plano, but uh, willing to travel. We have somebody in New Zealand. <gasps> Whoa! Yes, that's awesome. yes, New Zealand. And uh, and just so if there's any other listeners in New Zealand. Email us at hello at voxpodcast.com. Um, Phoenix, we've heard from several people in Phoenix. Yep. We've heard from several <laughs> We've heard from several people in the Bay Area, like several like lots of people in the Bay Area area. Uh, is, uh, Bay area. is Palo Alto, is that in the Bay Area too, or is that north? Yeah. That is Bay Area. Okay, so that that's even more people in the Bay Area. I've got somebody who lives in rural Maine, which Whoa. doesn't, uh, which doesn't, yeah, nice, Tim, Stephen thank King? you. Uh, Stephen King, possibly. Um, we've got somebody in Alexandria, Virginia. We've got, we've got, um, we've got somebody in Juneau, Alaska. Wow. Yeah, who wants to start a micro community? And, and by definition, any community in Juneau, Alaska will be a micro community and then um uh we have some listeners in san diego stay yeah. classy yes yes so there you go ladies and gentlemen 
Um, if you are uh, tracking along with us, we are interested in forming smaller communities. We have one in Columbus that we're going to start cooking. Uh, Tim is leading one in Auburn. And then uh, we've got folks, and I've probably missed several, uh, but those are the ones I was able to pull up right away. So anyway, that is a big deal. Thank you so much for uh, all of your support in that regard. Today, we have, a, a, I think, a pretty fun interview um, I have a friend named John Mark Comer, and he is a pastor in Portland. He and I are, have been friends for maybe 10 years or so, and um, and he's everything I'm not. He's stylish, he's articulate, he's a foodie, he's skinny, he's got cool hair, he wears scarves. I mean, <laughs> there's there's like, there's just nothing. He's got three names. Well, two oh, first names. Yeah. Or maybe it's yeah. a first and middle, but they're together. You don't you don't just walk around calling him John, or you don't call him Mark. You call him John Mark. Is we how can call you works. Michael Carl. 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 Um. So so uh, anyway, he's a great guy. Guy. He um, he runs a podcast called This Cultural Moment. Have you guys ever listened to it? You know what? I have not. I'm going to now. I didn't listen to it because everybody was listening to it. So I don't like to jump on the bandwagon right away. Nice. Word so that's why up. you were able to, to come on board with Vox because nobody was listening to it. <laughs> and That's why I read Harry Potter in my 30s. Not yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So this Culture Moment is a podcast he does with John, uh, John Mark and uh, Mark Sayers. Um, and it's really, really good. So anyway, we commend that to you. We've got a long interview with John Mark, and then we'll do an outro as soon as this is done. Anything you guys want to add before we dive in? No. Perfect. It's the purple ones that hurt. It is the purple <laughs> ones that hurt. So friends, enjoy, and we'll be back after the interview. Hey, everybody. Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you are joining us. And today, live from Portland, Oregon, Stumptown, as the new show has dubbed it, um, my friend John Mark Comer. Hello, John Mark. How are you? Hey, buddy. I'm just happy to chat to you. <laughs> John Mark, if, if you're new to the podcast, um, we, we've had John Mark on before. He is one of... Um, the people I enjoy most in the world. God is doing some really cool stuff. I mean, so I just, I know I got to get this out of the way before we can just chat about stuff, but let me just sort of list it uh, to get it out of the way, my friend. So first he's a pastor at a church called Bridgetown in Portland. And, um, and then secondly, he, he has a podcast that is really my favorite podcast. It's him uh, I listen to Conan O'Brien, who I find, who I think is totally fascinating. Really, he has a the, he, and he has a podcast. Yes, and it's about he interviews comics about comedy. Oh my gosh! And, and the parallels between speaking and creating and leading and what wow. he does—I mean, it's so interesting. Um, it's for mature audiences, obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> I listen to. But, a and by mature, we mean just. Not very Christ-like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are word combinations that are that are uh, awesome. Um, uh, but but the the one that John Mark does um, is called this cultural moment, and um, 
man, I highly, if you've never listened to it, please, please check it out. It really is. It's one of the best things out there. It really, really is. And, uh, and then, um, you've got another one, right? You just are doing around your new book. Tell us, tell us about that. Uh, one. Yeah. That's just a short little kind of one-off thing that we're doing right now. It's called fight, hustle and hurry, or maybe it's fight, hurry and hustle. I can't remember. One yes. Of but it's you and Jefferson Betke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And cause he has a book coming out. Yeah. We have two books on similar themes. So we're just chatting through some of kind of our anti-hustle, anti-hurry kind of pitch. Yes, dude. The ruthless elimination of hurry and i love um that it's bright red boom <laughs> um but it's a hey, little psychological behavioral behavioral economists call that a nudge like it's just a little like whoa yeah. stop slow yep. down yeah i like it see the book buy the i book, see you, you know, i see you john mark capitalism you. meets psychological <laughs> manipulation meets spiritual formation all on the book cover and this is the book number five, and um, and I've I've read them all, and this one is really, um, would you? Uh, well, I think you would say this, but this one seems um, like kind of a culmination of a whole bunch of growth and development in you. Would you? Yeah. And and in some ways, kind of the most important one so far. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's my best work so far, and uh, it's the uh, you know one of my lifelong struggles with is with perfectionism. And so all of my other books, by the time I was done editing them, I just hated them, which maybe that's just pretty common. You've written books, but then you're just contractually <laughs> obligated to just still turn the email in, you know? Yes. yes. Uh, this is the first one I ever got done editing and was into and felt really good about. And, um, nice. Yeah. So I definitely think it's culmination, you know, I'm nearing 40 and it's also my first foray into writing about spiritual formation, which is stuff I've been living into for a while now, but have not really, and I've been teaching on for a while, but have not written anything on. So this is the first of what I hope is many books all kind of around the growth of the soul. Yeah. And, and it's been quite the journey to kind of get to this topic, right? I mean, because when we first met, you were, um, you were doing The Way on Friday nights in Portland, right? Okay. Which was, yeah. what, a thousand Back in the co- era of, like, college ministries and stuff, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So it was a thousand college students in Portland that would show up. Yeah. And then, um, and then you had planted or co-planted this church. Yeah. Right? Um, and that had grown immensely and become, you know, all the things that, young church planners dream about, right? You yeah. were doing how many services a weekend, three or four? Um, I don't know. When we met, I'm not sure. I got up to six before I finally flamed out. Um, I don't know what it was when we met. <laughs> it was insane, whatever it was. And then, because yeah. you would do that Friday event and then you would do. Yes, all day uh, church on Sunday too. Yeah. I yeah, think it was four. Punishing. Yep. And, and then eventually we got to six services on the weekend. So it got to, we took Friday night, we took that college group and we planted a church downtown mm. that is now Bridgetown church that I'm still at. Mm. And, um, then we, at that point we had two services on a, on a Saturday night, three services Sunday morning and another one Sunday night. So six oh. services over a day and a half. And as you know, like the, actually the closer they are together, the easier it is to do. So the yeah. more you spread them out, it's a little counterintuitive. It actually makes the whole thing way harder. Oh, oh man, I still feel like I don't know that I've ever recovered from that. <laughs> but I look back, I'm like, what the heck yeah. was I thinking? But part of it was like, we came from the same story. So I have to tell my story, my Mike Erie story. So oh, boy. 
this is how we met. So I'm, gosh, I don't know what I am, mid-20s, gosh, I don't know, tw- late 20s maybe. can't remember how many years ago we met. 13 years ago. Four, I've been there 16 years. So it was a couple years in. So maybe 13 years ago, 12 years ago. I don't know. So my sister has moved down at this point. She's doing like a, she works for a medical agency where like as a nurse where they move her every three months and it's like all expenses paid, furnished department. So she's just going fun places. So she goes to Newport Beach and she's there for a couple months and we come down to go to Disneyland because she's like at, a, at an apartment that's free. And we're like, oh, let's stay at your apartment, my wife and I. So we come down and she's like, oh, I've been going to this church for a few weeks and has this great guy named Mike Erie. And I, I'd never heard of Rock Harbor, I'd never heard of you. And this is before like social media and the internet and second things were more word of mouth, how much the world has changed in <laughs> yeah, 13 years. But, uh, and so I'm like, all right, whatever. And I just remember I came and it was Mother's Day. Oh, and boy. you were up wearing a suit, oh, like, dang. and just sweating. I mean, like, it was a suit <laughs> slash, like, it looked like you'd been in the rain in Portland or something. You just had this giant handkerchief, and you were just kept mopping up your bald head, and your suit was just drenched in, you know, Orange County, California weather on Mother's Day, preaching in a suit. Oh. And it was the most incredible oh. thing I'd ever experienced. You were doing at, at a teaching level what I was trying to do, but horribly. And you were doing it incredibly well. And it was just, I remember I went to church in the morning and then I went back home, had lunch, and I came back again at night to see it again. And uh, you were still in the suit and it was oh still, you were, you were just, you looked in pain. At that point, you looked like you had the flu. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that suit was cleaned between between services. So I think that was a soggy suit when I put yeah, it back on. Yeah, but that was a turning point for me, man. Oh, Your teaching so kind, was a turning point. And then I don't know how it happened, but I basically asked you to mentor me, assuming you'd say no. And you said yes. And you don't really well, like the travel, proctor. It was the proctor would, connection. The proctor connection. You work with Todd Proctor, who was in my dad's youth group or something like yes, that, like forever crazy. ago. <laughs> and some weird connection. He knew of our family. And you would come up, man. And oh. we would go to Powell's Books, and you'd give me a giant box to read. And I'd read all these crazy heretics and different people. And you just kept <laughs> blowing my mind. And oh. from there, the rest the rest is history. Yeah, well. But no, seriously, I mean, you played internet, you should know. Uh, <laughs> Mike Erie played, for better or for worse, so blame him. But <laughs> that gigantic role in shaping me, in particular as a teacher, just massive, massive role. Well, thank you. But I think Obi, no, it was, uh, it was Yoda and Luke in The um, Last Jedi where – that there was the statement, I don't remember who said it, but we are what they grow beyond. <laughs> right? It's like the that? only good line in the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Anyway, John but Mark, yes. if you don't know, is is such a theological Star Wars aficionado. He's actually <laughs> oh, been ex Star Wars aficionado. I'm I'm like Are you the, out? Like, I'm like what all the bitter, disenfranchised, post-evangelical <laughs> megachurch people are. That's how I feel about Star Wars. It's all just commercial oh, no. compromise. They've ruined no. the purity of the art. Oh. They just destroyed it, man. Oh, money and toys. Oh. Let's not talk about it. Okay, we're moving on. So that's that's our love story. Doggone it. And I'm, I'm not ashamed that John Mark, and if, and if you get to know him, he is a foodie like beyond like kind of like, th- like you 
Well, like I know all the different Quiznos bread options, and I'm, I'm really picky. <laughs> I, I made him. <laughs> he asked me to. Be, and the I, difference between like Doritos and Fritos, just I'm really attuned to all of that. You just, that and Ohio I wish, State is basically I how I spend my free time: <laughs> eating Quiznos oh, and watching Ohio State. Good Lord, I just wish that they could see you. Um, in a quiz nose <laughs> with with just and he's he's so gracious to take what Mike is referring to is Portland's Portland. like that's where I wanted of, to go. Portland's like one of the best food cities in the world. So people literally travel from all over the world just to eat in Portland. Like they'll come to vacation in Portland just to eat. And so Mike would come up and I'd have like a new restaurant spot all mapped out. And he would he would make me take him to like Quiznos or I remember sitting in Quiznos once across the street from like this incredible Portland restaurant. He's like, no man, I'm from Ohio. Is there a Quiznos around? Oh, what a freaking loser. So that's that's when the uh that's when the um you know, the honeymoon wore off is that, you know. He's like, oh my lord! So, and then if you were to look at us, you could see who chose the better the better food path. But um, I I would love to talk a little bit about today because I mean, bro, you're doing you're. I mean, this is some really cool stuff. Talk. I want to talk just a, a second about this cultural moment because I I actually think that's a super important conversation. And so it's with Mark Sayers. Who? Yeah. How did you get to know him? He's from Australia, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. Mark is a pastor writer in Australia, but he's kind of best known as more of a cultural critic, cultural commentator, mm -hmm. and has written a series of incredible books. And how did I get to know him? I think we have a bunch of mutual. We had a bunch of mutual friends, and I started reading his books, and they were incredible. And I think he actually, I think he reached out to me. This is kind of a weird one to endorse um, his book, Disappearing Church, which was mm. such an honor to do. And we connected over that. And then um, one thing led to another, and he came out to Portland, visit our church, teach for us, did a lecture on a Monday night, classic kind of Mark kind of thing. And we sat down. I think this was right. I think this was right when Trump got elected. Hmm. And my city was basically having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And we sat down, or maybe it was when he was in the nomination. It was somewhere in there. We sat down in the basement like, and just recorded a one-off like podcast for our church podcast. I think we mm. called it Has the World Gone Mad? Mm. And I just basically – there was like, we weren't trying to start anything. I was just like, right. Mark Sayers is here and let's talk. And um, it was really fun and it just felt like we stumbled onto something. And yeah. then one thing led to another. And honestly, when I, we started the podcast, I had zero ambition. I just – if anything, I wanted to get his ideas deeper into my own like nervous system. Yeah. You know, because it, I don't naturally think that way, although I'm learning to. And so I just wanted to get his his way of reading culture. And Mark's whole thing, if you know his story, basically he was an early, early adopter in the missional church movement, came up mm -hmm. as a mentee of Alan Hirsch, if you know him, mm -hmm. and was in that whole world like way, way, way before me. Mark's, you know, 10 or 15 years older than I am, 10 years older than I am. And basically saw that the byproduct of a lot of that deconstruction of mega church was just deconstruction to post-faith, post-Christian, or at least mm -hmm. post-church. Half the people that were early leaders aren't even Christians anymore, much yeah. less in church or whatever. And right. he just realized, oh my gosh, we're not deconstructing and reconstructing something better. We're just deconstructing. And people aren't mm -hmm. even like 
following Jesus anymore. So he had this moment where he was with our mutual friend, John Tyson in New York um, at Trinity Grace at the time, and was just in one of their church services and felt like the Holy Spirit told him like, just do this. You don't need to reinvent how church is done. Just do like a good, healthy, well done, well led church. And he decided to take all of his like, you know, intellectual faculties, which are legion for that dude. And he said, what if I put all of that energy into deconstructing secular culture rather than into deconstructing church? Mm. What would that look like? So that's yeah. basically what he's done is he's just aimed all of that passion, intelligence, reading, thought into deconstructing kind of the secular culture, which ironically, all the deconstructionists are like super angsty and sensitive to anything mega or evangelical or whatever, but often just uncritically swallow so much of the secular progressive agenda. Mm. Um, it's kind of shocking. So that's why I just wanted to get his brain deeper into mine and I wanted more yeah. people to know about his work. So we started a little podcast and yeah, it's done, boom. Done yeah, really, well. really it, it's really, really good. Um, please check it out. So when we last left you, you were doing six services <laughs> and, and, you know, total introvert. So that, yeah. so that cost you double. Yeah, you know what that's actual... like. Yeah, I and I, that's one of the one of the few negative things I picked up from you because you were. I mean, how many were you doing at the height of the Rock Harbor days? I was doing five. Yeah, one exactly. Saturday, two Sunday mornings. So Sunday. hey, teaching mentor Mike's doing it. It's exhausting. But this is what you do. Right. And so it's really all your fault, Mike. Yeah. Oh, no it. question. No question. Yeah. And 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 there was a moment. You even talk about it in the book. There was a moment when you just couldn't. You just couldn't do that, and um, and what was happening like to to your soul from all of that? I mean, because everybody would look at it and say, "Oh my goodness, that's a massive success, right?" And in Portland, which is this hugely uh, secular city, I mean, this is this is such a big deal. So, why would you? Uh, what brought you to the point where you were like, "Ah, eh, I, I I just can't keep doing this." Um, you know, I think there's something cool that happens around. 30 or it might happen earlier or later, depending on your own life story, but where you have enough of like a autobiography under your belt that you kind of get a feel for who you're becoming. Mm. So like, I mm. think when you're in your twenties, so much of our church is really young. And so I just like lovingly have to explain sometimes like when you're young, you feel really plastic. You have mm. this sense of like, who will I become? You know? And I just always love to tell people as I'm teaching on spiritual formation, like that feeling goes away, you know, and it, and it was replaced often by dang, this is who I became. You know? And you think about the line, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Old people say that young people don't say that. Right. You, know, you never hear a 22 year old say that you hear right. a 69 year old say that. Right. And of course, neuroplasticity, it's not as true as people think and anybody can change at any age and yada, yada, yada. But I think my foray into spiritual formation, if it's taught me anything, it's that like you are on a trajectory, you know, in C.S. Lewis language toward heaven or toward hell, whatever you want to call it, Jesus language, life or death, which is my whole thing. Why, if you, if you run through the mental Rolodex of elderly people that you know, who are, and I don't mean like 40 somethings like you, I mean, you know, <laughs> 80, 90, 95, if you think about it, they are either the best people, you know, or the so worst. loving, happy, grateful present in their own body, just happy to be there with you, compassionate, or they are literally the most narcissistic, manipulative, vindictive, entitled, bitter people that you've ever met. There's not a lot of like 93 year olds that are just kind of blah. Most, mm -hmm. 20s, most 25 year olds, most 30 year olds are kind of in the middle. There's not a lot of them that are really good or really bad. 
-hmm. most 80, 90 year olds are really good or really bad. It's that whole, like you're becoming somebody. So I think I had like a a little bit of an early midlife crisis where Mm -hmm. it just hit me. I am not becoming like Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't feel that way through, through high school and college. And even my early 20s, I felt like this kind of upward curve of mm-hmm. like a trajectory. I felt like I was becoming, I don't know, spiritual growth is, is such sentimental language. I don't think, I don't even know what people mean by that. But I feel like I was becoming more like Jesus. And I felt mm-hmm. like my awareness of God's with me, withness in my life was on increase year over year. But then I just felt like I hit this plateau. Mm-hmm. And then with the church planning stuff, then I began to actually regress because I began to just burn out. Yeah, I was exhausted all of the time. I was under enormous amount of pressure, stress. We had 93 people on staff at some point. I had no business being the lead pastor of a church like that at 30 or whatever I was, 29. Like I just was nowhere close to mature enough, at a, even just at an emotional and relational level to set aside God to lead 93 you know, people on staff. or whatever. I just wasn't ready for that. Hmm. So I actually began to then not just plateau, but actually regress. And, and then I began to realize because something about the way that I'm following Jesus is not working because I'm not becoming more like Jesus. And somehow I swallowed the lie that like take up your cross as a pastor means sacrifice your emotional health on the altar of church planting or something. <laughs> totally. But nobody ever told me that. So I don't know where I imbibed that message. Like it's not like anybody ever sat me down and said, be miserable for the good of the church. Right. You know, but somehow that's, that's, you know, and I don't blame it on anybody. That's just, that's the message that came up in my soul and I somehow mm-hmm. bought into. Mm-hmm. And it did great damage to me and great damage to the people that I was pastoring, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, and then I just realized, oh man, I'm not alone. My church is, shocker, full of people like me who grew really fast early on, hit a mm-hmm. plateau. And many of them now, as life is speeding up, the phone is now coming in, Wi Fi, digital stuff are actually now like in some kind of regression backward who are becoming less like Jesus, less loving and joyful and at ease and present, you know? So I think it was like a kind of, yeah, early midlife crisis kind of thing. And what, what began to take shape out of that in terms of your interest in spiritual formation? Were you in therapy? Were you going to spiritual direction? I mean, what, what was some of the fruit of the wreckage, you know, uh, from that season? Yeah, all sorts of really good things. I think um, it's hard to exactly pinpoint everything. I started therapy, and that has been life-changing. I'm still with the same therapist. He's this, like, genius, PhD, Quaker, 70-something. It has almost my exact same personality type on multiple Mm. personality tests, but you would never know it because he's way more mature than I am. Um, (laughs) And I'm still with him, and it has been – it's been – one of, if not the other than like family and origin and stuff, probably the most formative thing I've ever been through. Mm. So I just, I'm really, I know a lot of people have bad therapy experiences, just like a lot of people have bad church experiences and that's really tragic, but mine's been incredible. Um, so I think that was the beginning. That was a, that was a huge step. I think for me, it was somehow I started asking the question, how do people change? And I, I got obsessed with this question. I'm still like, uh, I was listening to a long form interview with Tim Ferriss and Jim Collins. You read any Jim Collins books? You know, Yeah, back in the day. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not like a business yep. guy. Like I'm trying to get out of leadership, not better at it. Um, so I don't read, seriously, I, so I don't read hardly any leadership books. But somehow I got onto this podcast. It was excellent. And at one point, um, Collins, who's just a great thinker, said, you know, everybody in the knowledge economy, essentially has one great life question that 
all of their work revolves around. Mm. And he said what his was, and I don't even remember what it was. And I, I instantly thought, oh yeah, I know exactly what mine is. Mine is how do people change? Specifically, mm. you know, in, as a follower of Jesus, how do we become more like Jesus and live in the kingdom of God? Like the how of that, mm-hmm. I was wrecked a number of years ago. I was teaching through, I had this weird, barely ever happens to me, um, like on one hand in my whole life, but out of body kind of thing. When I was teaching through Matthew 28 on like the great commission line, you know, baptizing mm-hmm. in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And it was bizarre. I just all of a sudden like saw myself from the outside and realized I don't, I, I fancy myself a teacher in the pattern of a Mike Erie, not as good, but like in that vein, you know, I've been, I've been mentored by the best. I'm, I think of myself as more of a teacher than an evangelist or pastor even, you know? Right, right, right. And it hit me like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't actually do that. I teach people what Jesus has commanded them, not to obey what Jesus had commanded them. Mm, boy. And that's similar, but that's different. It's actually a lot different. It's yeah. like the, in business parlance, it's the, the how versus or it's the what versus the how. So it's one thing to like exegete, you know, Matthew six and tell people Jesus says not to worry or not to lust or to tell the truth all the time or to not manipulate people with language. It's a whole other thing to actually teach somebody how to become a non-anxious presence in an election year, you know, and you actually have to live that in order to teach it. And so that, I think that was revolutionary for me. Like, oh, wow, my job isn't just to exegete the Bible, which I still have a high value for, but it's to teach people how to live into what the Bible says, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that, it's a long way of saying, I think when I started asking that question, a couple of things happened. One, I realized that the, what I would now call working theory of change, I think everybody has, for most people, it's unconscious. Just how do you think you change? Yeah. And most people I don't think have actually thought, given that much thought to it. I, I never had. Most, and I think the working theory of change that I had, I'd never really thought about. I'd never thought about critically. It had been handed to me by my church tradition. And it was basically read the Bible and pray in the morning. And pray was, and read the Bible was defined as read through the Bible in a year. And pray was defined as intercessory prayer. Mm-hmm. And tithe and go to church on Sunday. Now, I'm for all of those things. Those are still in my rule of life. I still practice those things. I have no issues with those things. But that alone, I think it worked really well on some of the early stuff in my discipleship to Jesus. Mm. But then the second it hit like the deep ingrained stuff in my body and my neurobiology and my family of origin and my genetics going back to my (laughs) epigenetics, going back to my great grandfather, that stuff, it was just powerless. Mm. It was just literally powerless. And so this, like in church, we tell so many stories, at least in our church tradition, about radical healing, freedom, breakthrough. And there are beautiful stories that we should tell, but they're almost all early with Jesus stories. We Mm. rarely tell, like, I was a really kind of impatient person and Mm. I was just distracted all the time. And Jesus has made me very patient. (laughs) <laughs> or you know like because those rarely happen in like lightning power ranger yeah, moments no, yeah. and i believe in the in the power rangers kind of i'm a charismatic i believe in those moments but mostly they're about freedom and breakthrough and healing not about growth and maturity hmm. and so i realized oh wow something about the working theory of change that has been handed to me and that now i'm passing on to our church it gets people so far but it doesn't actually get people very far down the path with Jesus. And we can talk about all the 
you know, the way the Protestant Reformation, I think, has mm. kind of destroyed growth toward Christ-likeness in some ways. Mm. So, yeah, and so, so that kind of launched me on a massive, that's what I've been doing since, is like basically asking that question, reading a ton of psychology, neurobiology, ancient Christian writings, Eastern writings, thinking about, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy and how they view atonement theories differently, different. It's mm-hmm. more about healing of the soul, less about the legal stuff, more about union with God. So that's really my thing. And when I got into it, it was just shocking because like 80-ish percent of what I learned about how people change was new information. And I thought, all right, I read like two books a week. I was mentored by Mike Erie. I went through Shut Bible it. college. I went through seminary. I have a master's degree. I was leading a mega church. And if you had asked me seven years ago, hey, how do people in your church change? Let's say you have somebody who's really critical and is always negative and nagging at somebody. How do they become like Jesus? Joyful, compassionate, kind. Tell me how. I don't know what I would have said other mm-hmm. than like go to church and read your Bible and pray that you change. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all good things, but probably won't get, per- get a person very far down the path. Um, or at least not, you know, maybe look at them halfway, but not where they want to go. Yeah. So that's, I think that's kind of what brought me into this whole world that I'm mm-hmm. trying to live in now. And, you, and, and I think people are fascinated by spiritual formation in our world, right? Mm-hmm. They, they would never call it that. Yes. But, you know, I look at like the fascination with the Enneagram, for instance, yes. mm-hmm. or jo- the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson, love him or yep. hate him, or... Um, what the, all of the research going into how tech forms us and how yep. screen, I mean, that, I mean, we're neuroscience, we're, neurobiology, oh mindfulness, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, therapy, There's... yeah, self-help, self-growth. I mean, it's an obsession right now. So what separates the work you're doing on spirit? So what, it, what does the work you're doing have in common with all of that other work and what separates it? I think what it has in common with some of that other work is it's about the growth of the soul the inner person um, toward maturity and wholeness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has that in common. It has a, an appreciation for a broad range of sciences. You know, I think one of the things I picked up from you early on is it was, you know, your line was all truth is God's truth, you know? And I've been thinking a lot about um, our friend, Tim Mackey has done some great work around mm-hmm. like the, the Hebrew idea of wisdom or chokmah in Hebrew and the idea that Proverbs and the wisdom literature and the Bible is built around that just like there are physical, so to speak, laws to the universe, like MC squared or gravity or whatever, there are moral and relational and spiritual laws to the universe. Hmm. Um, there are just ways that the universe and the human body and interpersonal relationships and sexuality and marriage and parent, they're just ways that it's set up to hmm. flourish and thrive. And when you live in, in alignment with how it was designed, you flourish and thrive. And when you live mm-hmm. out of alignment, you suffer. Mm-hmm. And um, so that gives me, I think, a broad range of appreciation for neuroscience and you know, behavioral science and psychology and stuff where it corresponds to reality. I think the major difference is, you know, um, in order for the soul to grow, it has to have a telos. And it has to have like some kind of a vision of what it wants to grow into. And then I think it needs more than just habits, which there's great work on habits stretching back to Aristotle and, you know, recently and all the atomic habits and power Mm -hmm. of habit and all the, you know, popular level psychology stuff. It's all great. I'm hundred percent for it. 
But uh, I think that what the spiritual formation tradition of the Jesus tradition has to offer that you just can't get in a secular context is one, an overwhelmingly compelling vision of the good life as agape, as love in the kingdom of God with Jesus. Mm. And two, as the spirit of God in you to amplify and heal and move you toward this vision of the good life and enable you to not need your life to go a certain way anymore to be happy. Those are two things that I just don't think you can get outside Mm. of Jesus and they have meant all, all the difference for me. Oh, rock. Because, like, I mean, think about love. Like, I was reading Willard recently, and he was talking about love and how, you know, his short definition of love is to will the good. So everybody likes love. Like, I'm in Portland, you know, to say we believe the spiritual journey is about growing into the kind of people who receive and give love. Like, nobody's going to, like, atheist, Buddhist, everybody's down with that. Yeah. But then the problem is you have to define what love is. Most people in my city, by love, they either mean tolerance, which is actually closer to indifference. At times, it's incredibly unloving. Or they mean like niceness, like just be polite to people and don't be mean. Or mm-hmm. most of the time they mean desire. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I love some, I love tacos means I want to eat those tacos. Right. I love, you know, often when we talk about love and romantic or relational sense, what we mean is I want to, I want to consume pleasure and happiness at an emotional, relational, or even sexual level from another person. So that's obviously not what Jesus means by love your neighbor as mm-hmm. yourself. So mm-hmm. the agape thing, Willard defines it as the will to good, like to put the, the good of another ahead of your own. Then he just made the point that, you know, to, to love somebody, you have to have an accurate vision of what good is. Otherwise, you, you're not actually loving them. So mm-hmm. like, and so that brings us to the way bigger religious philosophical question is how do we know what good is? Like yeah. who's, what is good? What's evil? Is yeah. there such a thing? Who is a good person and how do you become one? These are like the core, core questions of life, you know? And, and it seems um, that a various, I don't know, theories or theologies of spiritual formation can be weaponized um, mm-hmm. for explain, and against ex- people. Ex- explain what you mean by that. Um, well, I mean, so my, I have very limited experience with the Enneagram. Oh, yeah, that, that um, sucker is weaponized constantly. It, it's like, oh, that's such a two thing. Or, yeah. Like, oh. I don't even, you know, and when you're around people, and God bless them, because evidently it's helpful. Yeah. I've read one book on it, and I have friends who are deeply into it, but but the thing that um, that that's just only, uh, I don't know if it's only my disturbing, but it's like, ah, I don't, I resist automatically any attempt to reduce me to a uh, a set of stereotypes, principles, or Mike, you know. that's such an eight thing of you to say. Yes, <laughs> that's what they said I was. I was an eight. I'm kidding you. I'm messing with you. Yeah, no, I'm a hundred percent with you. I was an early. I got into Enneagram actually before it was monetized or before or popularized would be a less cynical way to say that. Um, uh, and and I'm not I'm not I'm not against that, and I'm not against people making money off of. I've, it's been incredibly helpful for me, but I, I, my therapist actually gave it to me like seven years ago and mm. I'd never heard of it. It wasn't, there was no, there wasn't famous yet. And, um, I, it was incredibly helpful at that key time in my life. And it was just like a whole, like a new whole massive new dimension of self-awareness that brought mm-hmm. me into like all sorts of healing. It was amazing. But what I hate about how it's being used now is it's be, it's be, it's kind of devolved into like a theory of personality for interpersonal relationships. And I don't mm-hmm. like it at all. Mm-hmm. I'm not, mm-hmm. I do not like it for that at all. Like, you know, before it was popularized in Jesuit orders, I understand it. 
So a Jesuit priest would learn, it was kind of like almost cultish and secretive. They would learn it and then they would use it in spiritual direction with the direct D Mm. And they wouldn't even tell the directee, oh, you're an eight or you're a four or you're a five. Mm. They would just kind of, they had the framework. They would take an educated guess and they would just use that framework to help lead this person toward maturity in Christ. Mm. And then eventually, it could be five or 10 years into direction, if they felt the person was mature enough to receive it and was ready, because it's actually a really heavy emotional thing to Mm. receive. It's an identity. It can be an identity thing. Like it mess with people. Then they would graciously hand them, hey, there's this thing called the Enneagram. And hey, I think you're a type Mm. three or whatever, Mm. right? Mm. Which is how it was done to me. That's how my therapist did it with me. Mm. Um, And uh, and then this is the major difference. You weren't allowed to tell anybody your number. Oh, wow. And um, I still remember when I asked my spiritual director, who is this Jesuit priest, I had had him come teach at our church. And this is different than your therapist, right? Yes, yes. And Jesuit priest in town, wonderful guy. And I just had him come teach at our church on Sunday on the prayer mm. of exam and Ignatian spirituality. It was wonderful. And we were chatting between gatherings at the church. I vividly remember this. And I said, hey, Father Rick, um, what's your Enneagram number? And I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure he's a five, but da, da, da. <laughs> and he literally backed up against the wall, put his head down, covered oh, man. his chest with his arms, and like mumbled, uh, I'm so sorry, we don't stay. You would have thought I just wow. asked him like, you know, yeah. how much money do you make? Or what's your relationship right. with pornography? Or were you ever, you know, like, like I mean, you would have think, thought I would have asked him an incredibly inappropriate question. Because he's just from a tradition where you use Enneagram, but you don't use it for other people. You don't weaponize it. You don't popularize uh, it. It's so- for your own journey with Jesus. So I love it for that. But yeah. I don't, and I'm not against it in communities. We've hosted two conferences now. I just yeah. don't like the way people are flippantly weaponizing it. So I'm, well, I'm oh, with okay. you on that. Well, no, I mean, it, that seems interesting in, in the following respect. And I don't even know, th- I don't even know this is a coherent thought, but it strikes me as you're talking that w- the Enneagram, the way it's presented to me, isn't about formation. It, it's about um, yes. understanding myself. Right. Not Self, yes. Self-awareness. Um, um, so that so that if I'm in stress, I guess is the thing. If I'm in stress, I act this way. If I'm if I'm healthy, I act this way. And I don't even know if I'm saying this right. But um, uh, it didn't seem like there was a formative part attached to it. It seemed more like a Myers-Briggs or a... Yes. And to which I'd know, say, use Myers-Briggs then, if that's how you want to use it. Because it's got way more research behind it. I mean, none of them mm. are scientific, but it's more scientific. Right. Yeah, I agree. And that's how it was handed to me. So what my therapist gave me early on, you can still get this. It's actually, it wasn't available. It wasn't publicly available at the time. Now it is. If you go to Enneagraminstitute.com, which is kind of one of the early premier Enneagram mm. research think tanks. they And if you dink around on their website, you'll find for each number they have, I think they call it the seven levels of health. I still have like the printout that my therapist gave me in a file next to me, like old school filing cabinet. Come on, baby. Put away from me. Come on, and, baby. Um, and, okay, it, and it's all formation and it basically shows you at seven levels they call it seven levels of health but really it's seven levels of maturity i mean you can apply it a little bit to like how stressed you are but it's not that it's really more like this is you as you grow and mature and live a a healthy life and become more and more like jesus 
And so for my personality, you know, like the unhealthy version, you're like, oh, wow, sociopathic, you know, evil master Dick Stalin. And then on the other end, you're like, oh, Mandela or whoever, like moral reformer who's, you know, altruistic or whatever. And it shows you basically it's like a map kind of for your spiritual journey and I mean, in your spiritual formation. And that's still what I love about Enneagram. It exposes mm. the areas of my life that I don't want to admit and meet. And it shows me a path um, where I'm not comparing myself to you or some other personality that I wish I was more like. Right. But see I that, I've seen that graciously happen. settle into who God's made me to be and have a vision of what Christ likeness would look like through my gender personality and stage of life. So, so I, I've seen things like that sort of weaponized. I know that's a loaded word, but I know weaponized is a weaponized word. But yeah, no, um, that's that's a good. I think it's a, a, a but, valid word. But I also think it's true of of some spiritual views of change. Right? There was mm. the. I mean, and and our word for it, at least in the old days, was legalism. Yeah, that you would have to. You know, so my theory of change was just the willpower theory of change. Yep. Right? You just try harder. Yeah. And um, and that's fine for superficial. Which is ironic. That's what came out of the Reformation. Was yeah, basically go, go into that. don't go do into any that. spiritual disciplines because that's work-based righteousness. And instead, just try really hard. <laughs> so go into, because you hinted at this earlier, um, what the Reformation did to us in, in how, how or in what aspects has it hindered our ability to become like Jesus? Well, I mean, you could say as much about this as I could. So I, I don't mean that as a critic of the Reformation. Like I, I just, I read just this last summer, read Metaxas's new biography of Luther. Mm. And I had always been like a pretty heavy critic of Luther, you know, and just feel like mm. he kind of created so much lousy theology. Um, but <laughs> reading his biography, you're like, oh my gosh, like in context, this man is incredible. His mind was incredible. His courage was incredible. How God used mm. him. I mean, it's just, unreal I and mean, he really was a reformer calling the church back to fidelity to jesus you know so i think my respect for luther went through the roof reading actually reading a well done kind of story of his life but still i think you know those guys got a lot of things right but they got a lot of things wrong and um i think one of the tragedies that happened in the reformation was the redefinition of the gospel mm-hmm. from the gospel of the kingdom of god to the gospel is justification by grace through faith, not by works. So you have mm-hmm. two massive problems there. One is that's not the gospel Jesus preached. That's not the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So like, you know, McKnight's whole thing, the gospels are the gospels. Like it's so, it's, this is painfully obvious. Like a 12 year old would figure this out if they didn't have somebody yeah. telling them something differently. You pick up Matthew, the top of Matthew chapter one, it says the gospel according to Matthew. And then you have 28 chapters. The, all 28 chapters are the gospel. The good news is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to Matthew chapter 28. It's not just one specific atonement theory in 16th century language about one part of the story. It's the whole thing's the gospel. So, um, and when, when Mark and Jesus and such summarize the gospel, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's mm-hmm. it's like, which is bizarre. It's not you can be justified and go to heaven when you die if you believe. And it's not about you doing anything. It's not about self-effort. It's about grace. That's not how any of them, de- I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not how they define the gospel. So this is old news for the, the Vox podcast. You've, you've been down this, <laughs> down this rabbit hole many times. So I think, 
you have a, you have a you have at a over this is an oversimplification all right so it's which is probably unhelpful and i want to speak respectfully to my reformed friends but i think there is a, a legitimate thing that happens in the reformation where the gospel is not defined the way it is in the early church and in the new testament and in the four gospels it's defined as justification by grace through faith and then um, justification has a, a specific 16th century way that it's read through the legal courtroom thing. Yeah. And then grace is then defined or interpreted as just unmerited favor mm -hmm. and works mm -hmm. are interpreted to be any kind of self-effort in general. Correct. So I have two issues with that. One is I think that's bib biblically totally inaccurate. Um, I think grace is almost a synonym for the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, Gordon Fee's definition of grace is God's empowering presence. And if you just do a word study, just get like BibleGateway.com and just look up the word grace in the New Testament and then go through every example and read unconditional favor. I would argue, I did this once and my, I thought it was about 70 to 80% of the time it didn't make any sense. Whereas if you go and you read God's empowering presence, I think it makes sense a hundred percent of the time. So it's, it's closer to like our usage of the English word grace when we're like, how did you get through cancer or that really hard thing? Or your husband was gone on a business trip and you have four kids and people will say, Oh, I just felt like I had grace for it. Mm. What they mean is they held this like from some mm -hmm. deep inner source or outside of themselves source that welled up from inside. They felt like they had the emotional, relational and spiritual capacity to do what they were called to do and be what they were called to be. That's what I think grace is. It's the Holy Spirit in us increasing our capacity to become the people that we were always meant to be. And it's all by unmerited favor. I have no issue with that. But it's it's more than just favor, it's power. And then works, you know, N.T. Wright and others have on the more conservative end done beautiful theological work arguing that the works there are, are it's the Levitical code of the Torah. It's circumcision and kosher laws and you know, yeah. some of the stuff around Sabbath and priest rules, it's not self-effort in general. Correct. So, so I think my first it, issue there is I don't think that's what Paul is saying, that it's about God's just unmerited favor, not about you doing anything. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. And the mm. second one is, if that is what he's saying, I don't think it is, that that makes growth, maturity into Christ-likeness, I think, almost impossible. Because mm. following Jesus is something you do. And I don't think that's workspace righteousness. You know, Willard's line, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. earning yeah. And, you know, Protestants confuse those two things. They think that any form of effort is earning, which doesn't make any logical sense because we all use effort constantly. For every mm -hmm. relationship, everything we do involves effort. Following Jesus is something you do. So, yeah, I think if whatever your gospel is, if, if you preach it and people's response is not, oh, I need to apprentice under Jesus in order to experience that reality, then mm. we're not actually preaching the gospel of Jesus. Come we're on now. Something else. So I do think that there is a, you know, the evangelical tradition that we both came up in, even the non-Calvinistic veins of the evangelical church are still pretty Calvinistic and still mm -hmm. pretty reformed in their mm -hmm. view of atonement yeah. and gospel and da da da. And I'm so grateful. I'm not even like some huge, I'm really grateful for a lot of that. But I do think that there is a legitimate theological roadblock between some reformational ideas mm -hmm. and actually growing into people of love as mm -hmm. defined by Jesus. Um, I think. That's and so, and so, so where does hurry 
stack on the list of obstacles between us and becoming like the love of Jesus. I mean, <laughs> with no, because there, I mean, there's so much stuff that you could tackle. Yeah. Why? Why, why hurry? Why, yeah. Why this one? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't even on my list of obstacles when I started. Mm. And then by the end, it was at my top. It was at the top. Mm. So I think a couple of things happened. You know, one was my own experience with burnout. That was a watershed yeah. moment. I'm like realizing, sure. oh, wow. Um, two was then, you know, getting into Pete Scazzaro's work and emotionally healthy spirituality and learning. This is my language, not his. And so the numbers are all arbitrary and I'm sure inaccurate, but that 80% of loving well is being emotionally healthy. Mm. That I can get up at 5 a.m. and fast and pray and read through Leviticus and intercede that I be a kind father. And then I'll literally can walk out of my office hours later and like snap at my kid because he spilled milk on the floor and like, you always do this. You, you know what I mean? But if mm. I'm just like well rested and I have margin and I'm at peace and I spend time with God and time, you know, and dedicated awareness of him, then I, I find that I'm just way more loving. It's just way, way easier for me to just be a loving, compassionate, kind person. Mm. So that was huge for me. And then uh, hearing the, the, the Willard Ortberg story that I built that entire book around where yeah. Willard said, you know, the great enemy of spiritual life in our day is hurry. You must mm. ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And just thinking, here's a philosopher from the University of Southern California who was deeply involved in all things secular and all the intellectual arguments of the 20 and 21st centuries. And in his mind, he called hurry the great enemy. Mm. When he died, like he had like on his refrigerator, a hand printed note Ortberg gave me a, a copy of it, like I'm not an actual copy, but a, a type up of what it was on it. And it's just all notes on hurry and how hurry really? just, yeah, that was on his fridge when he died. Mm. And he had just spent decades teaching his body, like getting into his muscle memory and unhurried way of life, you know? And mm. then I think the other big thing for me, um, fourth, maybe watershed moment was when I sat with my therapist. So I, so I, I quit the mega church at this point. We'd, I'd come back, I'd done a couple church, a couple years of just kind of local church, kind of really leaning into urban missional kind of stuff. Some mm -hmm. of it was going great, mm -hmm. some of it was really not going well. Um, still having some of the same exact problems. And now we're, we're out of the mega, we're out of the, and we're still having a ton of the same problems. And we're realizing, oh, mm. people want to blame everything on the mega church. And that's a just easy scapegoat. It's not actually mm. reality a lot of the time. Mm. Still a lot of the same spiritual formation problems. And then, um, so I, I came up with a working theory of change that now we've rebuilt our entire church around. So we have like this kind of one page. This is our, this is how we think people change. Um, whether it's to become more like Jesus or to become more like Silicon Valley or Netflix or whatever. Yeah. This is yeah. our, we have, we have like a, just a, a non-spiritual version and then an intentional. <laughs> Seriously, we call it no, unintentional absolutely. spiritual formation and spirit and intentional spiritual formation. And so we came up with this whole thing, this little diagram and, uh, and I sat down with this uh, psychologist who's well-respected in town and I sat with him and I, I ran the whole thing by him and I just wanted him to just shred it, critique this thing. Like, you know, you're an expert, you know, all things, everything like critique all the stuff, you know, and he had a few things to add in, um, but really had very little. He's like, yep, that's great. That's, that's kind of how basically how people change. And then at the end, and then we were going to rebuild our whole church, which we've since done around practice and community and all this stuff. And at the end, he basically just had one thing to say, and I'll never forget it. He said, the number one problem you will face is time. Mm -hmm. And then he just said, people are too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich lives. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. his experience as a therapist after decades of working with people was the problem is not that people are stupid. It's not that they're rebellious. It's not that they don't have enough resources. The problem nine times out of 10 is that they just are too busy to actually become the kind of people they want to become. Mm. And uh, so th- that, I think that just really sat with me and I took it to heart. Wow. And I've realized all of the spiritual formation stuff that I teach, none of it will even happen, much less work in a hurried, over busy, tired lifestyle. So hurry is the, the word that covers a multitude of things, right? Because when I hear hurry, um, I hear anxious. I hear mm-hmm. like, I've got to move on to the next thing, certainly. Um, but but I, I did I wouldn't have included like the feeling of being overwhelmed or uh, being paralyzed because I have so much to do I don't even know where to start. Yeah, you know you know what I mean. So what so what do you put under the banner of hurry? Well, that comes later. I mean, my simple definition of you know hurry or busyness or over busyness is you know it's just too much to do and so, not enough time. Yeah, not enough time. And so the only way to cram it all in is to speed up your mind, your Mm. body, and your relationships and interactions with other people to this insane frenetic pace. And then often you still don't get it all in. And what that does over time to some people is it compounds in emotional interest and creates burnout, exhaustion, nervous breakdown. Not everybody. Some people are crazy type A, very high capacity. They can Mm -hmm. keep going like that for decades, you know? the stereotype of a CEO or whatever, but most of the time they're on marriage number two or three, their kids Mm -hmm. hate them. They might be happy and they might not be emotionally burned out and energized, but they're likely not loving, peaceful, joyful people in that sense, you know? Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a healthy kind of busyness. That's just, I have a lot to do. My life is full and I'm not just wasting it, you know, doing stupid things. I'm, I'm giving my life away. That's healthy. The unhealthy, toxic, what Rollheiser calls pathological busyness is like when you have too much to do. Hmm. And so that's why I think for me, teaching on spiritual formation or just following Jesus and growing, um, the, the very first step is you have, to, you have to eliminate hurry. You have to slow your life down because hmm. following Jesus is something you do and not in like a earning way. And like, no, you, you have to create right. space for God to love you into a person of love, which is basically in my mind what the spiritual disciplines do. And that takes time. And most of us don't have it. One of my, um, one of the guys who studied under Willard, who teaches at um, Talbot and Biola, Porter, in California, Porter. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, he's amazing, and he talks about. And uh, I just said a positive thing about a Calvinist. That's like that shows you how amazing he is. Well, it shows how far you've come. Um, uh, the two, uh, because we're able to do that now. Yeah, um, I really love his work. Oh my goodness! But he, well, you, then you've heard him talk about the relational theory of change. Yeah. Where? Oh, but um, go on and tell it. Well, Say no, it. I mean, it, it. I'll I'll interpret it through my grid, but it was so fascinating, and I could only understand it as a married man, um, and also as a father. Yeah. In, in other words, um, it's true everywhere else, of course, but but it it made it, it increasingly makes more sense when I'm in these sorts of patterned relationships. Where where it's not the willpower theory, um, th- these are his words, like the willpower theory of change um, or the just kind of wait and hope that God zaps me sort yep. of uh, theory of change. Which are, I think, the, the shortest ways of saying the reformed and the charismatic working theories of change. 
Yes. Like the Reformed is basically study the Bible, oh. believe in Jesus, and try. And the charismatic is basically sing a lot and wait for God to zap you. And they both have truth in them. Correct. But I don't think either of them actually get you anywhere near where you want to go with Jesus. Right. Because because Paul's favorite term is in Christ. Yes. You are in Christ. Everything's about union with Jesus, man. Everything. Come on. Exactly. And about, how do you those Jesus that? theory. Abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. Jesus like stay connected to me and you'll you'll bear fruit. And and what I what my tradition did is exactly what you've said. Reduce it down to a set of um, uh, spiritual practices that that didn't cultivate the abiding, but cultivated a sense of well, I'm just supposed to do these. Yes. Uh, because I'm a good Christian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, there was no. And they no weren't even bad it. things. They were no, just not at all. Yeah, maybe not holistic enough, and maybe I didn't get the heart pot. Maybe you know. Yeah. But I just, I mean. I read the Bible so differently now. I know. Then and and I, and it's hard. I still can't capture the difference in the nuance, because some would say I'm, I'm less. I'm so less uptight about things that would I would you know uh, spin me out. Like I just there's it's just a it's like a whole different world you sort of walk into, and and it, and it's similar. The only thing I have in my world to compare it to is what it's like to become. A married person yeah. or to become um, a parent like there you enter into a relational sphere and all of the identity of that sphere is given to you ahead of time and you're just working out yeah what that means and but it's the relationship that you have to the other person that's causing the formation to occur yeah and, and you think about any and you know obviously this all breaks down because in a marriage you have two messed up people that come totally, together and totally and yep. know each other, but like I think about how many of the positive qualities of my wife that were not remotely in me when we got married, we're total opposites, have now like actually kind of become a part of my life. That's right. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly Relational right. change. You become like the people you hang out. So this is why good parents are so like concerned about who their teenage kids' friends are. Because yeah. they know my kid will become like the people he spends time with. That's right. You know, that's exactly right. And why community matters yes. as Christians. It's not just a me and Jesus thing. But, and that's but why that, we have to view the spiritual disciplines is as creating space for relationship yes. with God to receive his love, unmerited, unearned, yeah. sure, all the reforms of, you don't earn it, you don't, but you create space for it yep. and, and letting him love you and letting literally the love, the spirit and the truth and the love of God come into your soul in those times and slowly over a lifetime transform you, you know? And then, and then the, here's the thing that's been capturing me. And then how do you parent that way? Oh, like, what are you even learning? Tell because, me, cause I'm trying to figure that out. Well, all, all the parenting I've been taught was, um, was moralism. Um, it was teaching them and there's a place, no question for yeah. moralism, right? Uh, we don't do that. That's good. That's bad. That's naughty. That's nice. Um, but but moralism devoid of any other part only teaches them to hide. Yeah. It doesn't do anything to shape their desire. And so Co John Coe, who works with Steve Porter, of course, at Talbot, um, he made an offhanded comment once about how as disciples of Jesus... When we confess our sin, 
um, what we first John one eight it. In other words, in other words, we quote first John one eight God. You know, if we're if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cl- cleanse us from unrighteousness. So we just claim that verse and then move on. And he talks about something he calls sitting in the weeds. I'm sure you've heard this where you're, uh, you're allowing God to love you in your badness. Yes. With your desires exposed for yep. all, just the ugliness that they are. And, and I started to adopt that into how I parent. Mm. In other words, I would never react to symptom ever. Like wow. we hardly discipline our kids ever. Um, but but I would force them into, not force, that's way too strong a word, but we would sit together in the weeds of whatever wow. it was, and we would talk about desire, and we would talk about formation, and we would talk about, like sex was the great example of this, because purity culture just teaches morality, Yeah. right? Um, but, but the scripture teaches sexual formation, right? Tyson gave yeah. a, a brilliant talk on this. But I realized um, what what I'm doing as a parent is trying to relationally form them in the way that God is relationally forming me, and that is to be present and loving in their badness. So if all I'm doing is punishing and correcting and consequenting their behavior, yeah, love and logic in it, yeah, yep. What what have I done? Well, I've corrected behavior, but all I've, I've done is driven it underground. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, that's why you can – yeah, that's why you can go to church. I mean, while we read of Christian celebrities that are, you know, beautiful in public and awful in private, it's just – right? Because that's what we do. And parenting – I don't know if this is making any sense, and it's it's, but I'm learning this so much because I so want to fight these battles with my kids sometimes. I'm like, that's a poor choice. You don't want to do that. And, and, and then I, and then I, I sit and I don't have that reaction and I just sit with them in whatever it is. Like, like the temptation to drink has been a huge for one of my kids. And, and I don't, I don't shun them for that. They're totally curious about it. Mm. And, um, and so we don't talk about not, you know, I mean, I've given them ways of escape if they're ever feeling uh, uh, pressure, you know, yeah. all they do is they text me the word kangaroo. And then 30 seconds later, I call them with a made up yeah. excuse to get them out of there practices and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we sit and talk about desire. Like, what do you see it doing? What do you see? What do you see people who do this? What are they looking for there? Like what, what are they receiving from? I mean, it's just such a different way to do it. And, and it, I can trace all of that. And I don't know if it's right or wrong or whatever, but I can trace all of that to this relational theory. View of spiritual formation, yeah. Yes, of God sitting with me in my badness, right? So and how, realizing. this is fascinating and really helpful for me. So how, like, okay, so you're 14, we both have 14 year olds. Yes. So let's say hypothetical scenario, you go out on a date with yep. your lovely wife mm-hmm. and you come home and 14 year old, punched Seth, screamed yep. at him, yep. and didn't clean the kitchen like she was supposed to, and didn't do her homework like she was supposed to. Yes. So, yes. You're Mike Erie. What do you do? All right. Come in. Um, normal, normal reaction is to, what the heck are you doing? Why did you do this? We left you alone. Da, 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 da. Right? That's the normal machine gun approach. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would um, then invite my 14-year-old um, into their room. And we would, I would just sit there and I would just sit there and not do anything. I would just sit with them and for five minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. But at some point 
I would just ask them in a non-anxious presence sort of way, so what happened tonight? And they would begin to unpack that and I wouldn't react. What, why, why, why did you think it was okay not to do what we asked? Why, I mean, why, what did Seth do that you thought deserved, you know, hitting? And, and my friend, almost every single time we'll get to tears, we'll get to repentance, we'll get to sorrow. Wow. Right? Because we're just sitting there and I'm not reacting to the behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and, and they get tired of it. I mean, they'll be so mad. They'll storm upstairs. They'll slam their door. And then about five minutes later, I come in with a book and I just sit at the foot of the bed and I just start reading and after, you know, and I'm just like, I'm not going to, and they'll say leave. And I'm like, no, no, you don't get to be alone when you're, when you're feeling this way, you're loved even when you're like this, you know? And, and then after a while, uh, and I've also learned that I'm literally joy- taking notes right now. So this podcast no, no. has turned into parenting coaching no. from teaching mentor to parenting. Coach. Oh, whatever. No, no, no. I, there, uh, I, I, I can tell you all the ways I struggle too, but what I realized is my presence in their badness, right? Um, That unlocks them and opens them up in ways that allows just us to talk about the real stuff. Like, you know, like last night, I mean, this is such a great example. My daughter, we were driving home from her volleyball banquet. And she said to me, Dad, I was really anxious about you coming tonight because you always want to leave right away, but I want to stay and take pictures with my friends and you've done this you've done this several times this is what she's telling me. you've done this several times and so i just get anxious about well we have to go or dad will be mad uh and, and the and and i was like oh my goodness that's so true and so i'm, I'm rewinding it and then i'm like babe it's because i don't know anybody and i feel socially awkward and so i just want to get out of there oh wow and and we get into this huge conversation about her comment about me and and then and and then we we kind of debrief that conversation i'm like well babe um why did you feel okay telling me that and she reflects back exactly the the kind of things i've told her about when she's sitting in her badness you know what i mean yeah and it's and it's just it's just awesome now this may not be right and i see areas of formation where I'm super disappointed and some of it is just teenager, no question, but I'm not uh, the bat. The only battle I fight is, is trust. Yeah. Right. That just let me in and we'll figure it all out together. Just don't hide. Yeah. Don't hide. And even when you want to hide, I'll pursue you. Yeah. And I won't crack it open. I'll just sit and wait for you. I remember when Jude turned 13, you know, or actually it was before that. Um, I sat down with him. We had this like big father son moment as he's just hitting puberty. Mm. And I, I said, Hey, I just, I want, you to know, how this, how this works. <laughs> I, 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 well, yeah, not just all that stuff, but okay, got um, it, got it, got it. basically said, you will never, ever, ever get in trouble or disciplined or punished for anything in regards to your sexuality. The one mm. thing is I asked is that you just talk to me about everything. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll just repent together, pray together, be together, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and he's responded incredibly well to that and tells mm-hmm. me, you know what I mean? All sorts yep. of things. And he's still young. So there hasn't been some, you know, big thing to hide yet. 
Yeah. But, uh, but I just thought it was so interesting. That's not, that's an exception to the rule of how I parent in the rest of his life mm. where the mm. emphasis is mm. on trust, honesty, and relational connection yep. on, you know, discipline based on behavior. I thought, yep. man, like what, which one of those is, is right and raw or is off, you know? And I, I, yeah. tried, I read that book, uh, No Drama Discipline recently, which is an interesting mm. book, secular book. There's some stuff in there I disagreed with. But one of the really astute observations they made is that children, especially as they get older, when you discipline them, meaning punish them, they respond with anger, not with repentance. I don't think they mm. use the word repentance, but sorrow right. or, you know right. what I mean? They just get mad yeah. at you. And I right. feel like the older my kids get, the more that's true. It's like yeah. ways of disciplining them that were great when they were three or four. <laughs> now they just like look at me super angry, you know? Yes. yes. And I'm like, ah, is that is that them? Or is that actually something about am I parenting them the way that I don't think church should run? Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, that's it. That is exactly right. And for my daughter to be able to correct me with gentleness. Wow. I mean, Oh boy. I mean that now you're cooking. Cause yeah. now, and if I'm in a place where I handle that well, now we're in it together, right? We're, we're on the road together to becoming something. It's not just dad doing dad's thing yeah. and daughter doing daughter thing. No, no, we're together. Like we go to counseling together. She and I, wow. we go, we go to yeah. counseling together. I've done that with my son too. Yeah. Yes. It's, and I take notes and I learn so much about her and it totally affects the way that I parent. But think about how effective therapy is. Yeah. Right? And what is it? Relational not, connection with some truth Trust in it. and honesty, yes. Yeah, and truth. Oh, of course. Listen. And we, that's back to Stephen Porter's thing. Stephen Porter's whole thing is um, word and spirit mm -hmm. are how we change. And I've kind of adapted that. I think spirit and truth is better language. But that's mm -hmm. his whole thing is that if all you have is spirit, all you have right. is, is presence in relationship, that's actually right. not enough to change. Right. Yeah. And if all you have is truth with no relationship, that's not right. enough to change. You have to right. have both. And that's why therapy is so powerful. It's spirit and truth. That's right. It's and here's so, a loving but, relational presence with trust and honesty and vulnerability who's offering yeah. truth. But the truth comes before the catastrophe. Yes. See, the correction comes when things are going great. That's the difference. So you're you're like, of course things are gonna go sideways, they're gonna make poor choices. But you're always coaching. You're always pointing out. You're always, you know, so, um, I mean, we talk. I make them, I, you know, and they're just used to it now. But we literally go through day, like every period of their day. And we just talk about what, how they're, and they don't use this language, nor do I, but how their friends are being formed wow. and how their friends form them. And, I mean, because one day, Anna, it was so, so awesome. She just came home. She's like, Dad, I got to stop cussing. And she, she'd been in Christian school until this point. She just got to public school. She learned a bunch of new words. And she's like, dude, I got to try all these on. And, and so I just start laughing. I mean, I just start laughing. I'm like, oh, my goodness, Hannah, this is awesome. You're like, heck uh, yes, but you didn't say heck. No, well, but, but, but my normal reaction would have been, right? Hey, we don't do that. And here's why. And I was like, well. That's really good, babe. Here's here's why I don't, uh, at least much less. When we first when we first met, you hated how much I cussed. Wait, you don't um, cuss anymore? This 
Not as much. Wow. Oh, no, 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 no. Because, because it forms you. And I want to yeah. be, because I speak for a living. Yep. I don't ever, I don't want those words ever slipping out. And I don't want to be a different person on Correct. stage or on a podcast yes. than I am in real oh, life. Lord, I yes. just want to, this, I want to be as much as I can the same person. Yes. But, but imagine that scenario where she has on her own initiative has been cussing like crazy and has just said, ah, I don't want to be like this. And then she said, well, so how do I do that, dad? And so we came up with just a bunch oh. of hilarious substitutes. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know if she still does or not, but how great to have that conversation, right? Like, is that, is that the battle we want to fight? No, but, yeah. but my question to her was, okay, what, how do you feel when you do it? Yeah. Like, what's that do? And she's like, I feel, I don't know. Sometimes I feel powerful. And I was like, dude, now we're on to something, right? Wow. But, but the correction and formation is happening all the time. It's not after, it's not when they're in trouble. That's when it's that's when it's almost exclusively you're just present with them because yeah. they know they if you've done it right they know ahead of time they already know nobody I mean I still don't I even with people that couldn't give two figs about Jesus of Nazareth I never have to convince anybody they have issues yeah right I never do if you just sit and listen and attend to them yeah they will naturally it's part of their imago day and common grace and the work of the spirit in the world they will naturally come to a place where they just admit yeah right life's too much and you just don't you don't have to shame them into into hiddenness wow so um it's been massive but but it all stems from the the same the same source John Mark of of no when I'm horrible with my kids by the way is when I'm in a hurry. Yeah. Right? Well, I'm the same I mean, it's and, all my worst parenting moments are when I'm stressed yep. and in a hurry. Always. Yep. All of them. Always. It's so which is and and I was glad you answered that question so well cuz cuz you hear hurry and you're like I don't need another book to tell me to slow down. Um, but this isn't that, right? This is, this is a book on how you're formed spiritually Yeah. and, and hurry, you realize becomes the main obstacle to it. Yeah. It's hurry is incompatible with love. That's my basic pitch yep. for the book in one yep. sentence. So listen, buddy, I'm going to let you go. This has been, well, I mean, you I just, go for you just gave me like parenting assignment. So now I'm going to go, this is, I, I, you just gave me like a pathway forward. No, I feel I like this started that. out as a podcast and ended as a <laughs> mentoring coffee session. No way. And I, ju I just no remember that the internet is listening. <laughs> Dude, I learned so much from you. Are you kidding me? This is so mutual. And, and not only that, I mean, I don't know that it's right. I just know that it, there, it, it feels aligned with what God seems to be doing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. The way God fathers and mothers me feels like this yeah you know um i don't need to be i i know i've sinned right i i don't i'm not i know and now no there are times and 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 we've had conversations where there are massive breakthroughs right that's the therapy model where yeah. all of a sudden i see a part of me i never saw before yeah and if i'm not judged in it i, I that will lead me to sorrow because i don't want to be like that yeah but if somebody jumps in right away and is like dude are you serious that is you know you then your defense be. mechanism goes up yep. and you just yep. like all of a sudden walls up, relational cutoff. Yep. Done. So anyway, um, my friend, 
I am proud of you. And I'm, I really am, man. I just, I, I love the work you're doing. And I'm, I think this, this sort of formation, um, the concepts, the language, the teaching on it is so, so critical. And I think that's what all, that's what a lot of us were compelled by Dallas Willard, right? Yeah. I and mean, here's a guy who actually turned in and, and some was personality. Sure. Maybe he was always gentle, but you read his biography and you're like, Ooh, no, he comes from some... trauma comes from yeah. crazy pain. Yep. But he's one of the most Jesus looking and feeling fellows I've ever met. And you're just like, I, if I could exude that yeah. in my seventies. Yep. Um, and everything we know about Willard is like after he's 55. Exactly. It was, it was, yes. And that gives me so much hope as a yep. guy in my forties because mm -hmm. my, my flesh wants to say all oh, the best years are behind, right? No way. What's Cazero's line? The best decade of your life is your sixties. Second best decades, your seventies. Third best decades, your fifties. Wow. Can you imagine if that's actually true? Mm -hmm. That's, that would be freaking Well, awesome. if your working theory of the good life is that happiness is the result of communion with God and character, the people that we become in relationship to Jesus, then every year you have more potential to grow and mature in right. your awareness of relationship to God and your Christ-likeness, which means oh, every year man. you're going to get happier and, and offer more and more to the world by the kingdom values. Yeah. All the other metrics, it's just like you peak at 30 or whatever, and then it's just downhill, you know? It totally all is, All the yes, secular exactly. Western metrics things. Yes. Like, oh, it's all age, just all youth culture, all, you know, da-da-da-da. But man, in the kingdom, it's just yeah. getting better. But think about church culture, where we've adopted that age thing, where, you know, it, and and I was a beneficiary of that. I was, yeah, know, me I too. Was, teaching and pastoring yep. in big public places in 20s and 30s. Yeah. And um and I'm thankful. Yeah. Uh but on the other hand but me now, too, I'm, but I look back and thought, why did you let me do that? I had no <laughs> business being on that stage. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, all right, my friend, listen. Thanks for so much of your time. Check out John Markey posts on Instagram regularly, not frequently cuz he's got great disciplines in his life and he's always reading something fascinating. Uh, Bridgetown Church, they have a great podcast of his teachings, and you've got a couple other teachers that are incredibly excellent. Mm. This cultural moment, something about hustle and hurry, and then <laughs> check, please, please check out the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It, it uh, I'm not just doing this because it's a friend, but it's actually a really, really good book, oh, and I would recommend it. It captures a lot of, um, of what we've been talking about. So, to that end, my friend, thanks again. I appreciate you so very much. Stay on, stay on with me while I just turn off everything. Hey, so what'd you guys think? John I Mark, loved, Michael Carl, what do you think? I loved it. Um, I have known of John Mark and just like through the Proctor connection and yep, yep. you and the way and different things like that. But again, I'm hesitant when things are popular. So yes. I, <laughs> I didn't right. jump on the bandwagon. So I was like so pleasantly surprised. Um, and I really, really liked, I loved like just the ebb and flow of the whole thing and how he went through it. But I pulled out a few points that I liked or wanted to talk about in particular. Nice. You want me to go? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Tim, I mean, Tim, do you have overall impressions before Bonnie gets going? I, I loved it. 
I really did. And I already asked you for the book because I would yes. like to read it. I think this is busyness or not the business. This idea of hurry resonated and is something I'm always trying to figure out. Yeah. So that was helpful. Nice. Well, the book is in the mail. The chicken is in the oven and it's the purple one that hurts. So anyway, <laughs> Bonnie, go ahead. Um, okay. First, I wanted to, in case listeners don't know, I wanted to quickly give a definition, or at least we could talk about for three minutes, the difference between spiritual direction and like therapy. Yes. Good, 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 good. Because I don't think that's always, um, <clears throat> people are aware of that. So like spiritual direction, the way I like the way I do it and the way I've done it with people like have a spiritual direction in my life is that our job as spiritual directors is like somebody to come alongside you and give like give voice and notice where the spirit's already working so it starts from a place that like the spirit's already at work in your life mm -hmm. but we have things that hinder us recognizing that and so our job is to help you pick out patterns is like you're talking about it and mm -hmm. to identify okay like i think we can dig in right here so different than therapy which is like your talk therapy or maybe even emdr where you're working through like a past trauma or things like that the spiritual direction like he said is really about the soul and discernment and growing on a very soul specific soul level so i don't know i just wanted to point that out because i think sometimes that can get confusing if you're not used to it for sure for sure excellent yeah so that was good um but anyways okay i loved his idea about his working theory of change hmm Okay, so remember last episode when you asked me about what chromosome was I, and I said I don't know science. <laughs> oh, I forgot that slogan. <laughs> oh, sorry, other one. <laughs> I felt so mad at myself after the episode that I didn't know science. Oh, so man. this past week, I read a book about quantum mechanics. Nice. <laughs> yes. And Wait, now I'm we sorry. can say you did I know what? science. You this weekend you read a book about quantum mechanics. Okay, but here's here's the disclaimer. It was it's a book written by a psychotherapist who uses the theories of quantum mechanics in their practice. Wow. So Whoa. he talks about it in terms that most people can get. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, that's but still it, science. Still science. So that what caught me when he when when John Mark said about how do you change in your theory of change, I was like so excited about it because one to his point when he's like and to your point too, Erie, when you guys said like the theory of change I've always stuck with is just try harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like pray yeah. more, try harder. Um, even even in terms of hurrying, like just put your phone down, just take right. deep breaths. Like it, it's it's all these like works thing. Um, but yeah. something I was learning about in the book I read was we are like really in a mode of operation of like Newton's law. Okay. That says like a, an object stays static until something interacts with it and pushes it and pushes it forward. Mm -hmm. But if like you're it, talking in the quantum realm and whether or not you agree with this, at least it'll jog your brain to think about it differently yeah. is that the world is in a constant state of renewal and participation not static so if you believe if you kind of live under the umbrella of the first belief then you believe that change is hard 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 if not impossible because mm. you stay static until something mm -hmm. pushes you forward mm -hmm. versus the idea of no we're in this constant state of renewal the universe is constantly renewing you know like the renewal of all things which is 
the gospel message. Like Jesus is coming in and he is, we're renewing things or he is renewing things and we get to participate with him. So when he said the theory of change and how is it that you change? I loved that because what he's saying is change isn't hard. What makes it hard is that we've really sold it one way to try Mm. harder. But if we could all sort of implore these other ways of understanding the world and ourselves and each other, then we actually might have an opportunity to change. Hmm. And so when he quoted you from Rock Harbor and he said, you know, your tagline of that stuck with me of all truth is God's truth. That's not not mine, but yes. Well, you said it. So that counts. Um, (laughs) um, But is that... um, (laughs) That has stuck with me, too, because I have never, which I'm sure you'll shock to find out, I've never fit in the mold of like, this is how you should approach your Christian walk. So it's never worked for me. And I, for a while, felt shame about that because I couldn't Mm. change the way I wanted Mm. to or the Mm. way I felt like was making me more like Jesus. But then once I allowed myself permission to look at these other areas and I actually found change and became more like Jesus and fell more in love with Jesus, then it was like everything kind of got bigger for me. So anyways, Mm -hmm. I loved Mm -hmm. when he said that. I don't know if that Mm -hmm. resonated with you guys at all. I consider myself to be an expert on quantum mechanics because I watched Ant-Man and the Wasp and the Avengers Endgame movie. And I realized that if you do a Mobius curve inverted, you can travel back in time. And so when John Mark was talking about that, I thought of that, which led me to quantum mechanics, which inevitably led me to the quantum realm to hear. Um, No, I I, um, first of all. I that you just went and read a book on quantum mechanics. Uh, I know science. Um, I was, I goes, why are you reading that? I said, well, I don't know science. And he's like, that's an interesting place to start. Yeah. I mean, there are other places you can kind of in- be introduced, but hey, why not? Um, exactly. No, that's, that's, I like, so what John Mark's done uh, in, in some really fun kind of creative ways is he synthesized a whole bunch of maybe 20, 30 years worth of work in spiritual formation, which was a relatively new sort of way of thinking, um, right? We were, we were just all told, listen, here's the punch list. You do this, you become like Jesus. Uh, but people like John Coe, Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, um, a lot of a, a lot of those people were beginning to say, well, it just doesn't quite work like that, particularly in the the deeply ingrained sort of behaviors and attitudes we have. And so um, I think John Mark is is doing a remarkable job of synthesizing that, applying it in fresh ways. Um, so the theory of change stuff, I was just, you know, I loved it because it was Steve Porter language. And, mm-hmm. and the thing that he said that has always stuck with me is just the idea of a relational theory of change, that it's right. relationships that changes, which has been, you know, completely my experience. And so anyway, I love that too, Bonnie, but I did not think to apply it to the quantum realm. <laughs> so well done. Well done. <laughs> what else? What else? Did, what else did you think? <laughs> Um, I liked what he said, too, about um, the Enneagram. Oh. Ah, yes. You know, we've you and I and Tim, we've been talking, discussing the Enneagram a lot. But yeah. what he said of, like, how we've really reduced it into, like, what's your number? What's your number? Kind of talk. 
it's yeah. like I just felt like I was cracking up about that because a that's true, but b that's such a microcosm for what we do to everything, right? Mm. We like mm. take it and we simplify it and we apply it, and so his way of reframing it of saying like the enneagram should be spiritual formation um, was mm. super helpful. We have so I think I've told you this, but I work with a um, within a collaborative. It's called Radical Wellness, and on the team it's the theory of what he's talking about is that like you have to approach wholeness from all these different areas right so mm. there's me as a spiritual director there's therapists there's someone that does um like embodiment and nutrition and then we have an enneagram coach coach as well and so you wow. the person who's in there like bounces between between the providers depending on what what they need mm -hmm. But the Enneagram coach, one of the things she told me that I was like, oh, is she said, you know, people always take the Enneagram and then they say, well, that's just how I am. So like mm. I'm a four. And so that's just how I process things. And then they leave it like that. Mm. She's like the list. When you figure out what your Enneagram number is, the list of things that it tells you, that's actually that's been your coping mechanism for your life. Mm. So it's not necessarily a state you live into is it's a reality of this is my coping mechanism. So how can I be healthy instead? Got it. Yeah. So you're growing into something, not uh, a description of just who you are. And so then you just leave it like that. So I really yeah. liked his reframing of that because I think that's yeah. really needed um, because what he's done, like you said, is taken something and gone. And this is totally his cultural moment thing of like, how right. have we how have we reduced this as a culture? How can we make that bigger again so it brings wholeness? Yeah. And and I, I liked that all of that is in recognition of the fact that there's an immense interest in formation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's there is, I think there there's not nearly the suspicion uh of the generation kind of above mine about, yeah. you know, things like meditation or um uh, imaginative prayer, like all mm -hmm. of that stuff was like, oh, that's new age, that's pagan, you know, blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so something like the Enneagram, um, <laughs> you know, would have come under such suspicion. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and maybe we're too open and too broad, you know, to about anything these days. But but there's a, a sense in which I, I do think, because I've done all of those tests, um, that, that they're helpful in identifying things, but they're not helpful in forming out of those things. Right. And, um, and so I thought that was, that was super fascinating too, right? We'll talk to, I'll see if we can't get your, uh, our uh, Enneagram friend on uh, the podcast to talk yeah. about it kind of with that, with that in mind. Yeah. That Tim, have you, Tim, have you ever taken it? I just did um, like two or three weeks ago. Okay. Don't tell us, but what is it? What's your don't, number? Don't tell you, but what is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I think I we'd know. all I think we'd all like to know, but I'm technically John Mark said I'm not supposed to ask. So I'm not asking, but if you want to volunteer it, I would listen. I am a four with That's a, so four of you. With a five. With a five. All is right, that what's how you a four? With a with five, a five. You would say with a five wing. I'm a four with a five wing. Okay, what's a four? It's the number after three and the one before five. Excellent. What is the character? <laughs> what is, is the like title of the four? Creative and the individualist. And... There you go. Individualist, creative and emotional. Check. <laughs> I'm I'm in. Sign me up. Right. <laughs> 
I get overwhelmed right. in crowds. I need my personal time, my personal yes. space. Yes. And you're really gifted at facial hair. Yeah. Shauna's right. been sending me all the little, like, she she's getting into it now. So she's sending me all, like, the little uh, lists of, like, if you're a this number, this is how you handle this situation. If you're she's like, this is you. This is you. This is you. And oh, my natural wow. tendency is to be like, don't tell me who I am. I'm not that. That's, yeah. that's because that's a foreign you. See? Oh, boy. There it is. <laughs> and there, and the circle is now complete. And now John Mark shaking his head somewhere in Portland. Totally. At a quiz <laughs> nose. You at all, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I just wish, I just wish people could have seen it. I mean, he was so humble to shove that, you know, ugly white bread into his face just to honor me. I didn't it know they still around. Well, this was a few years ago. I don't know if they are, but, but I... He was like, where do you want to go eat? Because I was teaching that night. And I was like, oh, dude, is there a Quiznos? He's like, a what? <laughs> just, just, I mean, <laughs> oh, my Lord. It's just amazing. He's my friend. <laughs> He's my friend. You know? All right. What else you got, Bonnie? Oh, gosh. That was so good. Well, I, he, he got me thinking about if we should be using the term deconstruction. Oh, Bonnie. Yeah, I really like it's not often something kind of like twists my heart in a way that makes me be like, huh. But it really made me think that of that because so when he was talking, I realized so much stuff that I have said is deconstruction in my life, I think actually has been formation. Hmm. Um, hmm. But because I've looked at formation as this very narrow thing and deconstruction hmm. as this very narrow thing, I kind of just picked one. Like, uh, right. I guess it's this because it seems like some of my faithies are changing. So it must be that. Um, right. But hearing him talk, I was like, gosh, maybe we it would just do better for the whole conversation if we mm. named it formation instead right. of deconstruction. So to the listeners who have been following our journey, I started the EMDR therapy. Mm. And it's been nice. so helpful. What, okay, what is it? Okay, so <clears throat> this will get us to our labeling of deconstruction. So okay. she has this, and someone who's an expert will probably be able to chime in better. But she, basically, you have events that happen in your life. And usually, if okay. it's a traumatic event, it can be anything, small or big. It goes from okay. your trauma part of the brain to the adaptive part of the brain once you sort of get through it. Sometimes, okay. though, it stays stuck in your trauma part. Okay. And then you it literally stays stuck there. And then all these other events in your life that are triggered by that same thing, um, they go and they get hooked on to that. So if like if the mm. trauma thing is your fist, then the fingers are all these other events. So when Got I it. went in there, I said, I think the trauma part of my brain or I think my trauma is our stillborn. And she was right. like, of course. Um, she's like, but right. usually the event that gets us in here is the one that broke the camel's back. You actually have a whole bunch of traumas before that. Uh, so like we figured out what the real trauma was and it wasn't that it was something mm, different than happened. Like mm, when I was 10. So, mm, but anyways, what she does is that she goes through and you, it's like this whole process of stuff, but you find the event and you think of the negative belief that you have about yourself. And mm. then you also have a event in your life, a memory can be anything that's not tainted in any way that that is your safe place, your safe event. And you think of a truth about yourself that you associate with that memory or that event. 
Then you go back and forth in therapy and you re like re-talk about and relive the traumatic event while you're being, your right and left side of your brain are being stimulated. So you can do lights. She does for me these little vibrating things. I put them right under my knees, mm. like while I'm talking on the couch mm. and they go back and forth. And then once I've gone through that, then I go to the safe event again. So the idea is that you're teaching your brain, you can move from trauma to adaptive and mm. you can move from this lie about yourself to a truth about yourself. But wow. we always end on the truth. And mm -hmm. what she says is that she's like, so then during the week or whatever, if you come up against anxiety or things like that, instead of naming the anxiety, which is what sometimes we're apt to doing. So instead of saying like, mm -hmm. why am I like this? Or I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. And kind of repeating the lie of the event, mm -hmm. you have to teach your brain to repeat the positive truth. Like mm -hmm. that was then, but this is now or that's over and I'm safe now, or whatever it is that you've chosen as like the new truth that you want to get to, that you want your brain to get to. And that's yeah. because it's like, it's a practice of it. So when John mm. Mark was saying that, it like made me think, I had just gotten off the phone with my therapist and finished reading my quantum realm. So I was in a real ripe state when I listened <laughs> to that. <laughs> but, um, but, um, <laughs> oh, and the chicken is in the oven. The chicken was in the oven. And so anyways, what it made me think of, though, is like, I wonder what it would do to our brains and the way that we think about things and the way that we talk about things and the things we find, like the three of us, to talk about, or even just as the church at large, if we instead of said deconstruction, which has a negative connotation anyway, because it's a, a tearing mm -hmm. down, and mm -hmm. we just called it formation instead. Like, I just wonder if we just even made that subtle shift of language, what the difference would be in our, like, at large as the whole church, like in our conversations, but also like how we view things. And do you know what I mean? I don't know. It's just something that I thought of. So, so the idea would be we're always being formed by something. Mm -hmm. And so, so what do you do when you outgrow or you move beyond? Mm -hmm. So, so like... If it's all formation, um, is there is there something missed without some sort of modifier to that? Like, because mm. because I feel like no question it's formation, but there's another sense in which it, um, it's it's kind of deformation too. I mean, there's mm. um, and I'm not trying to hang it on a negative term, but I'm I'm trying to say, but there's a there's a um, I don't know, a disorientation that's true of this mm. that I don't know is captured by that. I mean, no, I, you're right. The yeah. positive term. I, and, and this isn't even worth the conversation. It was just more like, huh. I know. Well, I, I, I guess because I want to, I think something that I'm passionate about at deconstruction is I don't like when we deconstruct, A, and we don't reconstruct, right? We, there's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever it is that you end up on, like I'm not judging you there, but I'd love to see something positive instead of like if somebody yeah. ends in anger yeah. or yeah. hurt. Um, and the other thing is, is like threw the baby out with the bathwater. Like so many times we deconstruct and then everything that brought us to that point, we now say like that's gone and discounted and it was bad and awful. And even though yeah. some of it might be, um, I don't want to dismiss that. Like I'm a big proponent mm -hmm. of like, Hey, like we're always learning something or we're being brought through something for a reason, you know, that type of thing. So I guess for 
formation yeah. for me that kind of includes some of that backstory too yeah no that makes sense what do you think tim yeah i was thinking about this in regards to the last conversation with the judgment stuff and you know, having to pilfer through things to find what is truth and what is not truth. And because I think, I think even before I came on here, you know, when you talked with Kevin number one, uh, and you guys were referencing a question that I, or a conversation that I had had with him about um, the weariness of reconstruction because of the, the eventual need to re deconstruct again when you realize that the things that you had reconstructed were. Yeah. not correct either right and i was thinking about i don't know if i was thinking about the term formation but i think that does make sense because for me it's kind of like it's almost like a labyrinth and sometimes mm. you take a, a right turn and you hit that wall and you're like i have to take a couple steps back and, and then continue mm. on the path so sometimes the redirection is part of the formation process the stepping right. backwards is part of it and it's not throwing the entire yeah. journey out the window but course correcting certain aspects of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I, I let's call it. I, I like deformed and reformed. <laughs> I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's good or know. not. Yeah, okay. there was a, there was there was crickets. That's what crickets sound like, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right, right there. Um, all right. Any other any other thoughts? I mean, I was expressing a lot of my opinion in that. In that interview, so I, I'm not. I don't have. A, a, like, oh, you guys are having fun. I think that was. Yeah. One thing I thought add. about. He said the. Um, did I write it down? Eighty percent of loving well is being emotionally healthy. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I thought that was really interesting in. Uh, this deformation and reformation process. <laughs> um, actually, the thing that popped in my head right away was a Bonnie quote about. Um, yes your neighbor that came over and you, and you said that we, you think that we should be people who hold pain well. Mm, yeah. And that has hung with me since you Come said on, that. Bonnie. I think that's a, a profound idea, a profound statement. And I'm, I've been curious with, uh, how to, um, how to like, how to pursue that idea on a daily basis. Right. And I think that the kingdom mm. dynamic stuff, which I keep bringing up, but, in this the idea of leaning, yeah, the idea of leaning into these two different dynamics and how you do that and what that means on a day-to-day, decision by decision basis is also informing this kind of formation idea or deconstruction or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I always feel hurried, so this this conversation is uh, pertinent. Yeah. Well, and I also I think I was telling you guys this last week. Um, but talking about being hurried, like I was a little skeptical about reading the book too, or about li- honestly listening to the conversation because like I've heard a million times, like slow down, don't be on social right. media, put your phone. And I've, I've always been like, yeah, I guess I should do that. But why sort of? So mm-hmm. his approach to it is so not this do it because mm-hmm. we just should. And because otherwise it makes baby Jesus sad and like <laughs> this, like really mm-hmm. rule follow, he approaches it from this aspect of wholeness and that like, Hey, when we do that, when we slow down, we are healthier people. We're more creative. We're more, you know, apt to be in relationship with each other. That to me is a compelling reason to do it. Not just yeah. because I should, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So right. I appreciated I think that. It's super interesting. The, uh, cause it's a, constant conversation in our house about we're just like well pretty soon 
somewhere around the corner, we're going to get to a, a spot where we slow a little bit or mm-hmm. we can catch our breath or reconvene or, yeah. or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't think that corner's coming because <laughs> it's just, yeah. things get busier and yeah. more things come in and kids add to that equation. And, oh man. but I was thinking about when you guys were talking about, it, I was thinking about just like news feeds, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm just like, I, I'm aware of everything that's happening in the world all the time, and I don't have time to process it. Yeah. And my brain is reforming to this idea of just jumping from news story to news story. And I do that in life, too, where I'm I'm not being present. It's not as much the busyness of the amount of things I have going on. It's not being present in the things that I'm currently doing. Right. Totally. Yeah. I've had to stop looking at the news entirely. It's hard. It's so hard because I really like to and I like, yeah. I don't want to be ill-informed, but until I can be at a place where I can take it in and it doesn't affect me and like my anxiety level, yeah. then it's not, and it's not like I don't hear about it. I mean, you hear about it all the I time. Say, should I stop <laughs> sending you guys those articles all the time? Then? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I just mean like I was getting in a habit of it, you know? And yeah. then I, my husband, Cy was like, I want to tell you to not look at the news. I was like, I don't even do it. You know what? You just, you just keep mind your own business. <laughs> and then like a week of not looking at it. I'm like, Hey, that's really helped. So thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Any, any advice that you automatically discount from your spouse should be, should be considered with great seriousness. So true. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I thought, and then I, I loved that we got to talk a bit about like the relational concept of change and how it works at parenting, like this parenting thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I, I just thought that's interesting. I, I, um, I mean, what did you guys think of that whole part of the conversation? Did you see it as something separate or did you see it as, as related or I was worried that was too off topic. No, I thought it was great. That's why I texted you kangaroo. And then I realized you guys maybe didn't know the context of what I was texting. I figured I was like, oh, it's something that I'll listen to. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it was. All right. I was like, yes. Because I was was listening while you guys were texting about something else. And I was like, and it was right at that spot right then. So when I texted it, but it was in the middle of a different conversation. But no, I thought um, it was good. I mean, I think especially Tim, you go ahead. Go first. No, 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 go, go, go. I wasn't going to say anything important. I was just going to say I didn't think it was off topic at all because um, his whole approach is that everything's connected, Mm -hmm. which also is in the quantum realm. Oh, (laughs) snap. (laughs) But this idea of that everything's connected and like so how I approach this is how I approach that. Like Sai always says, how you do anything is how you do everything. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be able to meander into conversations about mm-hmm. parenting or whatever else and that it, we should be able to refocus back. But here's the question. Are you going to go see Kanye and Joel Osteen? No. Come on. Wait, how, how much? Like he's, he's performing at, at uh, Joel's church. I, and I, I would just how, – how much money, Bonnie, would it take for us to pay you to go? I don't know because honestly, I'd probably take the money and just tell you I went. (laughs) 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 Well, there you have it, sports fans. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But also, this is Bonnie post therapy. (laughs) 
<laughs> but also, I had to Google I who he was married to. Like, I'm so out of touch. I thought who Kanye's married to. Yes, I thought he was married to yeah. Beyonce. So for a long, yep. t- so now then I had to reconstruct my idea of the church because I really thought Beyonce was leading the choir. Oh, <laughs> yes. And that probably would have gone. I don't me think there. that's happening. Yeah. That, okay. Okay. So if Queen B shows up, I'm there. Then I'm, there. We're there. I'm there. Yeah. So I was okay. already when you said formation, that was all. It was just playing through my head. <laughs> there you go. Her song. <laughs> I, would you go? Right. Would you go and see it? Me? Yeah. Oh, in a heartbeat. Go. Just the, the just the cultural spectacle of of the mashup of a mashup. That, that belongs together, but I never would have imagined belonging together. I know. Would have you were been, just there. You missed been, it. But somehow it fits I, perfectly. I, oh, it's just, I, I just think it's the greatest okay, thing ever. Would, I you, mean, I, would you preach there? If they were like, hey, we want you to come preach, would you do it? Um, If they allowed me to preach what I would preach. Yeah. Sure. If yeah. they didn't. Absolutely. Nice. But if it was like, hey, you can't, you know, whatever, then it'd be like, nah, I'm probably not your guy. What if they said you How can't wear you? cargos? Oof. <laughs> All right, then I'd go. I'd go for a kilt. And um, if there was really no, if there was no on the kilt. I would go. Evidently, Lululemon makes men's yoga pants. And I didn't know that, but but I was. I, I don't know how I got on this thread, but it was somebody on Twitter. It was like, hey, what do you wear when you fly? And the number of ex NFL players that wear Lululemon like athletic pants sweats because my daughter loves like women's i I have no idea i don't know it looks like you have a field trip in store for you today (laughs) 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 you imagine yeah showing up with kanye and joel osteen and lululemons that that right there that right there you know what that's some when you said that's some deconstruction that right there just provoke the same feeling i got when somebody put the mashup of your face on my picture on Facebook. On Facebook. <laughs> Did you see what? that? No. You haven't seen that yet? They no. took my headshot and they put your face in it. Well. I you know you have to look at it. I commented. I don't want to I'm I, so afraid. <laughs> did you throw did you throw up a little bit in your no, mouth? I or didn't. I mean I would, Bonnie, I would appreciate it if you'd shave your head and give me the hair that would be left over, I think I would look very good. I would feel, I, I, I would look a little bit like Kenny G, uh, cross between <laughs> Kenny G and John Travolta. Oh yeah, um, I could see that. I could see that. Well, you know what? This is full circle because I think Kenny G plays on uh, the new Kanye record. <sighs> and the circle is complete. Well, it depends the if either of them are into quantum the physics. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, <laughs> That, this is what we call an outro. And um, <laughs> well, friends, um, we encourage you to check out this cultural moment and uh, the stuff John Mark's doing. And so we're we're fans of what's happening there. Um, we also are fans of Bonnie and her translation goes to print tomorrow. So we're excited about that. We're fans of Tim. And Tim has been sitting on new music. Is there any anything going to happen with this new music at all? I don't know. I've been sitting on it for almost a year now. I don't know. Tim. Okay. I don't know how to release it. I need some people with Spotify playlist connections. It's all about playlists. Okay. I don't okay. understand it. 
Okay. Tim, I can help you run a Kickstarter. Let's get you, Tim. Let's get you on the John Denver playlist. Please. Um, Hey, folks. This is your friendly neighborhood producer, Tim. I had to cut that a little short because the conversation devolved into thoughts on George Burns, The Mandalorian, the Apple Plus shows Dickinson and C, Jason Momoa, and a bit more on the quantum realm. Everybody was feeling particularly chatty this week. But I wanted to come in here and take a minute to say thank you so much for listening to the Vox Podcast. Please visit the website at voxpodcast.com for things like show notes and tools that can help you share Vox with other folks that you feel may benefit from this discussion on faith, doubt, and culture. And if you have a minute, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings help others to discover these conversations. Vox Podcast is funded by donations from like-minded listeners that find this a safe place to discuss anything. Vox is a 501c3 nonprofit community. If you have found Vox to be helpful, and if you have the means, please consider helping us out with a monthly donation as small as $5. Search for Vox Podcast on Patreon.com or Tithely, which is T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y, or click on either of those links at voxpodcast.com. All financial gifts are tax deductible. We are grateful for your partnership, your support, your voice, and your presence in this community. Thanks. Thanks.